Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it is Trinity Sunday, as we've already said, and as you may have heard in our readings, and it is therefore incumbent upon me at least once a year to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a little interesting in the calendar of the church. Most of the feasts or the principal days that we mark as a special Sunday have some event in the life of the Lord, the life of the Lord Jesus, his baptism, his presentation in the temple, of course, the great feasts of his birth and of his passion. Uh, but this is one Sunday in the church's life in which we are called to contemplate the mystery of the Trinity. And so I want to speak with you, or at least reflect with you. James asked me at the beginning, are you going to explain everything about the Trinity? And I said, you just have to see. You just have to see. So you, you have to wait still. Um, I want to reflect with you on the mystery of what it is that God uh, is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think this does three things for us today. The Trinity helps us to know who God is. It chastens us in our knowledge of God. And finally, it's fundamentally practical. So let's think about how the Trinity helps us know who God is. As you know, not all of the religions in the world are... Um, are Christianity is not the only monotheistic faith in the world. There are a number of other ways of thinking of God as one God. But Trinity names the uniquely Christian conviction that there is, while there is only one God, that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all fully divine, but nevertheless distinct from one another as real persons within, mysteriously, one Godhead. Some of you are aware that the term Trinity, of course, doesn't occur in the scriptures, the church doesn't find the full language, or at least the language that is going to become normative for several centuries to express this, the mystery of what is revealed when the Father sends the Son into the world to redeem the world, and then at his return to heaven pours out the Holy Spirit. Tertullian of Carthage in Africa is the first thinker in the early church to use the phrase Trinity. In fact, he seems to have coined it near the end of the second century. Now, someone might... There's some scholars here who may correct me about that, but I think he's the first to have coined it. Um, but here's Tertullian of Carthage and what he says about the Trinity. And notice the, the paradoxical, semi-poetic, mystical way that he speaks. We worship unity in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. This conviction that God is both three and one, which is mysterious and not something we can finally penetrate analytically, is actually one of the common unifying doctrines across the whole divided church. You don't need me to tell you that the church exists in a great fracture today. Uh, but one of the things, uh, with a few exceptions, that unites the church is the conviction that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But to confess that God is Trinity is to take on an interesting idea, which is that God is revealed 
gradually and in a developing way in history and in Scripture. We don't get the full-fledged development in the Bible. In fact, we get what looks to be a developing process that then continues beyond the Bible, which commits us in a certain way to the idea of tradition or the ongoing work of God in the church through the Holy Spirit, which of course has to be discerned, but is done so in community. It's one of the distinctive things that as Anglicans we want to hold forth to the world, to not abandon the tradition of the church, but to discern within it the truth. Let's look at Genesis 1 for a second. We start at the beginning. I'm not going to walk through all of our texts, but um, in Genesis 1, it is one God who creates. But did you notice that strange phrase that God says, let us make man in our image. Let us make humankind in our image. Now, there are a number of ways that theologians and biblical scholars have tried to understand this use of the plural, let us. God could be speaking to the company of the angels. Perhaps it is so. But the image that God makes humanity in is our image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's nothing like a doctrine of the Trinity here, but there is a little bit of a glimpse into the possibility that within the divine person there might be more than we might simply imagine. When God creates humankind, interestingly, he doesn't create a singularity. He creates a relationship, male and female, becoming the father and mother of the, of the, of the human race. It seems like a relationship is built into what it means to image God. And if that is so, then it suggests that perhaps God himself exists in relationship. If the image is one of relational life, perhaps the original is relational life. This is what we get at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 21, we hear that the kingdom, the, 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 the new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. It is relationship. It is the dwelling of God that is now with humans that God is, up, that God is interested in. But this runs into a challenge, or at least a uh, complexity. Listen to what Deuteronomy says. Famously in Deuteronomy 6, this line that becomes so paradigmatic for Jewish and Israelite and then Jewish and then later Christian faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And uh, Father Ryan O'Dowd, who's uh, away after having married his son off yesterday, um, and I have a long-going conversation about how we should translate this. The Lord our God, the Lord alone is our God, or is it that the God is one? And you can ask him what he thinks about that. But the tradition Later Jewish tradition and certainly early Christian tradition understands this as a statement of God's unity, that there is only one God. But even Jewish thought prior to the Christian development of God as Trinity begins to think of God in ways that stretch this. We hear in the book of Proverbs that wisdom was with God at the beginning, the first perhaps of his creations, or at least the manifestation of God's person, exists in this wisdom persona. So that uh, a Jewish scholar who's very interesting at the University of UC Berkeley, I think he's still there, Daniel Buryarin, uh, describes a kind of Jewish binatarianism that develops 
in the period right around the birth of Christianity. But what we believe, what we have come to confess as the, as the triune God, uh, happens, we come, this is a, the, a, an idea that we receive when the manifestation of the Son of God comes. We hear things like we have been reading in John. In John these like several chapters, John 14 to 17, that we've been reading over the last few weeks. Jesus uses over and over as he's speaking to his disciples this language of being in as he refers to himself and to the Father and to the Spirit and, in fact, to his disciples. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I'm giving you another counselor, another advocate, another helper to be with you. He will be in you, and I will come and make my home with you. The Father and I will come. There is an inner dwelling of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, both in themselves and also within the people of God. We don't get, even still in John, a full-fledged Trinitarian dogma. But did you hear in the New Testament reading that Ricky read for us, this blessing at the end of Paul's letters? This is one of the very earliest Christian documents in the New Testament. And the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul is clearly committed to one God, but when he wants to commend the grace of God, it comes in the name of the Father, of the, of, of, the, of the grace of the Lord Christ, and of God the Father, and of the Spirit. In Matthew 28, there's this baptismal formula, baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So these ideas are latent within the New Testament, and ready to be developed by the church's thinking as it wrestles through, what does it mean to confess this kind of God that is revealed in the Father, Son, and Spirit? But all of this is not abstract. Although it sounds abstract, it is, in fact, personal. And that is the point of the Trinitarian doctrine. I don't know what it's like for you when you're speaking, if you do speak, about God out in the world. In the secular, post-Christian, post-modern world, it's a little bit awkward to talk about God in public. And so we have circumlocutions that we use, like the universe, like the universe didn't want me to get to work on time today, so the traffic was just terrible. Or if we're being uh, a little more serious, perhaps we take, talk about the transcendent or the numinous, the ground of our being, karma. None of these has a face. But here, we are taught to think of God as Father, as Son, as the mysterious Spirit who invites us into an intimate and personal relationship with a personal God. And this is not a degenerate sentimentality that is a no novelty on the scene with evangelicalism, which emphasizes a personal relationship with God. Listen again to the words of John 14, which we're just really hitting John 14 this season. I will not leave you as orphans, says Jesus. I will come to you. You will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
I do as my Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is no stale or bare doctrine, but a loving relationship of the triune God into which we are brought to share. Listen to how St. Gregory Nazianzen from the 4th century describes this relation of love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This is a little bit of a long quote. I hope you'll indulge me. From the day whereon I renounce the things of the world to consecrate my soul to luminous and heavenly contemplation, when the supreme intelligence carried me hence to set me down far from all that pertains to the flesh, to hide me in the secret places of the heavenly tabernacle, from that day my eyes have been blinded by the light of the Trinity, whose brightness surpasses all that the mind can conceive. For from a throne high exalted, the Trinity pours upon all the ineffable radiance common to the three. This is the source of all that is here below. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Listen to what Gregory says he cannot know and cannot do. The mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity, and this is especially relevant for us in the time in which we live, in the wake, the heavy wake of modernity, the Trinity chastens us as knowers. The language of the church for Trinity is the language of Scripture. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's received language. It comes to us from outside. We didn't make it up. It's there in the text. We read them this morning. And they can't be exchanged or reduced. But it brings us to the limits of what we can know. And it challenges our ability to infer things about God that we might think we can from the little bit that we know. Because we are in the business of doing this. You're some brilliant people, many of you far too educated. And in that world, we come to the, the impression, and you don't have to be an imaginally educated person to have this impression about the world, that just about everything that can be figured out is figured out. Not so in the realm of God. We learn that the Son is begotten from the Father. But this does not mean that the Father predates him. In the beginning was the Word, says John. He is begotten of God, and yet he is always with God. Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Which must be true. And yet, in the gospel passage today, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. You don't much, get much greater than all authority in heaven and on earth. Which gives you some pause to think about how there's absolutely no way of thinking about Jesus as he's presented in the gospels as just a regular good teacher. 
Nadzienzen, again, just because I know James wanted to hear more Nadzienzen. I should like, he's thinking, this is Gregory thinking about the relations among the person, the fact that the Father begets the Son and that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. He's thinking this about the Father, but listen to his reticence. I should like to call the Father greater because from Him flow both the equality and the being of the equals. But I am afraid to use the word origin lest I should make Him the origin of inferiors and thus insult Him by precedencies of honor. For the lowering of those who are from him is no glory to the source. This is the apophatic way of theology in the early church that sets, that recognizes that we are at the limits of our ability to understand God when we talk even about, as we must, about what is given to us in Scripture. That is, the cumulative effect of all of this is to teach us that intelligibility is not necessarily a feature of divine reality. We can and must receive some things as true without being able to analytically comprehend them. And you know this is true even in the natural world. Joe Dill's not here today. Is there another physicist in the room? I can't remember who's a physicist. So there are things on the quantum level that just cannot be, or aren't comprehended, at least by somebody like me. How much so in the realm of the mysterious revelation of God. The inner logic that holds divine truths together is above our constitution. I think this is what Isaiah meant when he said, speaking for the Lord, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is not a plea for a blind faith, a faith that doesn't ask questions, a faith that doesn't have doubts. Did you hear that little mention in the Gospel of Matthew? The very end, and some doubted. It's there in all of our Gospels. What we're after here, I think, is an honest recognition that biblical faith never gives us a philosophical leg up on God. As we think about God, we are always at the limits of our knowledge, always in a place where pride can turn us toward error and even idolatry, and where humility is therefore always needed so that we might not distort one divine truth with our apprehension of another equally divine truth. The Father is God. The Son of God is eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit of God eternally proceeds from the Father. But these are no rivals. There is only one God. And the greatest minds of the early church meditate on this rather than trying to comprehend it. If when we speak about God the way the Bible does, we are always at the edge of our knowledge, this is because theology is not meant for the amassing of religious data, but to usher us into God's presence. Bring us to our knees in worship, gratitude, and repentance. Which means that the knowledge of the Trinity is practical. Although Trinitarian dogma deals delicately with the eternal relation of the persons, it is preeminently concerned with explicating the work of God in Christ as He confronts us personally. God the Father has sent the Son into the world 
for its deliverance and by the Holy Spirit rescues persons, human persons, from sin and death, from human ugliness and fear to bring them into the life of the Godhead. Abstract knowledge generally leads to impersonal assent. Do any of you kids know what the, it would be some of the older kids, the Pythagorean theorem is? Are you there yet, geometry? Jeff is nodding. Jeff's one of the older kids who knows the Pythagorean theorem. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. It always helps. This is good. Um, I imagine that many of you, A squared plus B squared is C squared. That's what it is. Um, Most of you simply believe this as true, but I doubt you do so with a great deal of feeling. It is possible to have a similar relationship to the teachings of the Christian faith. In our epistle reading for this week, Paul is worried about this. He seems to envision something like a nominal faith among the Corinthian church because he tells them to examine themselves to see if they are really in the faith. Are you really in Christ? And he thinks it's possible that they might fail the test. It's a remarkable thing that early in the 50s of the Christian era, 20 years after Christ has died and risen, it's the possibility that there would be people nodding along in the church. Yeah, sure. I believe all that. Missing it. Our gospel passage, which has the fullest Trinitarian expression in the entire New Testament, doesn't make any room for this. Go, Jesus tells the apostles, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, to obey everything that I have commanded you. The apostles will go and they will baptize those who express faith in the Trinity in the name of the Trinity. And yet that faith means becoming a disciple of Jesus. Go and make disciples. Someone who learns from him. Learns from his person. His life. Who walks in his way. Who obeys his teaching. And experiences his presence. Surely I am with you always. To be baptized into the name of the Trinity is the beginning of a life of experiencing and being conformed to the love of God. A love of God that is never self-serving, but which always flows outward to the beloved other. This is the love that stands behind that great saving act of the Son of God, who as the creed says, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven. And this phrase is a beautiful synopsis of the gospel message, but it's also a fitting description of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is not theological abstraction, but is personal and practical. It is for us and for our salvation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.